this great big cigar. And uh, somebody asked uh, George Burns how come he always had that cigar with him. And he said, well, at my age, if I don't have something to hang on to, I'm going to fall over. <laughs> so I've got a wonky hip, so this morning I'm going to uh, probably sit while I talk. And that'll let me call, talk for two hours instead of 25 minutes. <laughs> Um, John made the announcements and welcomed you as usual, and uh, all of us who are at IPC want you to know who are visiting that John and Ange have been a huge blessing to IPC over their years of ministry among our youth, and he's, God has used John and Ange's many gifts to bring transformation to the lives of a lot of our young people, and we thank God to them. And for them, and we're asking God to give them a smooth transition as they move to answer God's call to ministry in Markham. Um, we're asking God to help them find a new home there, and we know that God will provide that. And we're seeking the Holy Spirit's ministry in their lives that Christ may be made plain to people there in Markham as he has among our youth. Meanwhile, it's my privilege to lead the process of forming a team here at IPC who will lead IPC's youth ministry in the interim over the summer months. And we're also forming a search committee to be used by God to find another youth ministry leader here at IPC. Um, it's encouraging to know that already we have 15, 15 applicants. So the process is underway. And uh, I know that many of you are prayer um, advocates in this congregation coming before God to plead for us. And I ask all of you to include us, include us in your prayers that together as a team we may discern where God is leading us in this process. Now, I want you to watch some images on the screen that will be really familiar to you as the pictures come up. And I wonder, can you figure out that Charleston, South Carolina scene where people are crowding into worship at Emmanuel AME Church? And the week before, they were gathered to worship during the week, to study the Bible, pray, and God opened their hearts and made room in their circle for one who was a stranger to them. Could they know that they were embracing the one who had cut them down, nine of them, one after another? I read one news report that tells that the first person killed was 87 years old. Is there any way to make sense of that? And um, as we look at the next picture coming from 
thousands of miles away from Charleston. Am I the only one who has to turn my head away from yet another gathering of bloated corpses and from the wild grief of mothers of dead children, this time in Nepal? And how long ago was it when we watched those gruesome images as Christians lined up on their knees on a beach in the Middle East, given the option to deny Jesus or to be beheaded. Ecclesiastes is a strange book in the Bible. The word Ecclesiastes means teacher or preacher. And it's a book in the Bible that tells us that life is a vanity of vanities. It's empty. Utterly meaningless, he says. And then in Romans 8, Paul moans the same thing. The whole creation, he says, is subject to vanity. It's groaning in pain. So, with those words on the screen, I invite you this morning to look at the carnage that cycles through the news week after week after week. To look at those images through the lens of Romans chapter 8 and through the lens of this strange little book that we're going to look at called Ecclesiastes. A long time ago, Bible teacher Haddon Robinson opened this book up for me in a new kind of way. And here's how the teacher begins in Ecclesiastes. He begins, and his plot line is this. He starts with... Uh, Life is futile. Life is vain. Life is empty. And he goes through what he has to say and comes to the end of Ecclesiastes. And then he says, having started with life is vain, life is futile, life is empty. He ends with some feedback, but... Uh, he ends with, fear God and keep his commandments. How do you get from vanity, life is empty, to fear God and keep his commandments? Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And between that beginning and that ending that's hard to figure out how you get to from the beginning, between 
those two poles is the book of Ecclesiastes. And there's a throbbing theme that drums from beginning to end that takes us from that strange beginning to that interesting end. And here's how he expresses it in one chapter two. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? And then he continues in chapter 3. I know that there's nothing better for men or people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. And then finally, in chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes, remember he started with, life is vanity, it's empty, meaningless. And he finishes with, fear God and keep his commandments. And he takes us through this labyrinthine road from the beginning to the end. Go, he says, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved or God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white or celebratory dress. And always anoint your head with oil, a sign of joy. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. All the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life. And in your toilsome labor under the sun. Can you figure that out? Here's the premise. Life is futile and meaningless. And the conclusion, fear God, keep his commandments. And in between those two poles, eat, drink, and be merry. So how do we put this together? Well, to begin with, it's crucial, it's absolutely crucial to understand that when the teacher says that life is meaningless, that it's empty, he does not mean, he does not mean that life is not worth living. He means that try as we might, you and I can never figure it out. This man is looking for a key that will unlock the mystery of life and explain it. And he discovers that God is the keeper of the key, but God never gives the key to you or me. And try with all your might, you will never figure it out. Listen to what he says in chapter 3. God has made everything beautiful in its time. You've heard a song about that. I think it was Bobby Gimble, wasn't it? God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they, listen now, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. 
you can't figure it out. In chapter 7, when times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, but a man or a woman cannot discover anything about their future. Times are good, be happy. Now that seems like pretty easy advice to follow, doesn't it? We had a good time last night at a wedding reception. Happy times. It's the way life ought to be. But when times are bad, isn't that when we ask the questions? Ecclesiastes, the teacher, gives us all kinds of examples. For example, in chapter 6, I've seen another evil under the sun, he writes. It weighs heavily on people. God gives man wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing that his heart desires. But God does not enjoy, enable him to enjoy them. And a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless and a grievous evil. Isn't that the way life is sometimes? I was thinking about this when, uh, when we're young and lean and hungry. All you can afford is cheese sandwiches. And then you get to the point in life where you can choose anything there is on the menu and your teeth won't chew it <laughs> and your digestion can't handle it. So you have to take Tums with it. Something about that is futile and meaningless. Investment bankers know that some of the stupidest people in the world are among the wealthiest. And some of the smartest people in the world have gone bankrupt. But he keeps going, the teacher does. And he tells us that the reality, and we know this, the reality that drains most of the meaning out of life is the reality of death. In chapter 2, the teacher writes, the wise man has eyes in his head, while a fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. And I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. And I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. Think about it. Here's a young person who graduates with honors. This is the season of graduation, right? So here's one young husband who graduates with honors, and his parents and his wife's parents celebrate with him. 
And within days, he drives up to his very first job. He comes over a hill, and there's a semi jackknifed sideways across the highway, and bam! Years of work, years of study, all of his hopes, all of his future, gone. And in the nursing home sits his grandmother looking out at the world through watery, uncomprehending eyes. And she doesn't even know who her children are anymore. Death has found her grandson, but death has lost her address. Isn't there something futile about that? Can you figure it out? And so the teacher looks for a key that might unlock that mystery, that will make sense of it. And so between the beginning of the teacher's writing and the end of it, he studies nature. And then he looks at science and history. And he studies philosophy and theology. And he looks to talk to people who claim to have all the answers. And he concludes that the more you know, the more you know that you know nothing. <laughs> and if it hasn't already, someday that will dawn on you. And then what? Do you give up? Do you live it up? Ecclesiastes shows us something better to do. We can look up. Because when you're done with Ecclesiastes, it's clear that he is not a cynic. He's not a skeptic. He's a realist. And he's a realist who is also a person of faith. And one of the many truths about God that he comes to is this. God is in control. Did you hear him? Chapter 3, verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. God has also set eternity in the hearts of men or of people. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. You see, this man, even the teacher, doesn't know the plot line. But God does. And sometimes we think we've got it all figured out. Just when we think we've got it all figured out, we come away with our PhDs, an earthquake hits. Innocent children, mothers, criminals, good people, bad people. Sometimes the jail is left intact while a nursery holding children is destroyed. And it all breaks apart. And so do our little schemes. And we're cast 
again back onto the truth that we don't know, but God does. God is in control. And Romans 8, Romans 8 that was on the screen a while ago tells us that the whole creation was subjected to futility, that it groans in pain. And then in verse 28, Paul also tells us that in all things, all is a huge word, that in all things, what? God works together for good. In the face of the futility of life, the emptiness of life, not only does the teacher believe that God is in control, he also believes that this God who is in control is good. In chapter 3, I know that there's nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. God is good. Do you ever find life perplexing? Never mind. I do. This man says that don't let those clouds of questions so fill your sky that they brought out the good things that God is giving you day by day by day to make your life enjoyable. God gives you food for your table, the teacher tells us. Don't feel guilty about that. Enjoy it. Life comes to us from the hand of a good God. So enter into it, the teacher tells us. Enter into it with thanksgiving and joy and a dance step. Live it to the hill because the God who gives it is a good God. And at the same time, not only is God in control, not only is God good, but this God who is good is also just and holy. conclusion of Ecclesiastes is this. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, the God who is in control, the God who is good, the God who is holy and just. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So live life to the hilt, the teacher tells us. It's God's word. Live life to the hilt, but live it as people who are going to give account to God 
for the living of our days. We will answer to God for the good we could have enjoyed and refused to enjoy. We will answer to God for the good we could have done and didn't do. The rest belongs to God. We began with some pretty grim but all too common images. With the awareness that we're in a world that is sometimes numbed by the dull roar of death and suffering. And this is what God says to us. We just can't figure life out. But we can, we can live it in the presence of a sovereign and good and holy and just God. God never promises us answers. He only He only gives us not answers, but himself. And God never says that he's going to explain everything to us one day. He simply gives us himself and all of the good things in life with him. And he says in the middle of the unsortable complexities of life, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Therefore, we can say, what can man do to me? So, when that malignancy shows up, Who else shows up? A savior who has wounds in his hands and in his side and scars on his forehead. Who shows up is Jesus, the betrayed Jesus. And that betrayed Jesus is a sign to us that though we can't figure life out, God is not absent when a friend or a spouse betrays you. That God is not absent in that grisly highway accident. That God, the good God, the God who's in control, the holy and just God is not absent when a stroke reduces a vigorous, intelligent life to drooling. And when we meet the God who has come to us in that dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't shield his eyes from our sorrow 
from our hurts, from our confusions. He doesn't bail out when the going gets hard and grimy. He's the God who in Jesus Christ felt the full brunt of all that harms our life together on this broken globe. He's the holy God who sees life as it really is on this broken planet. And then he gets to work to bring healing and forgiveness and cleansing and gives us the power sometimes by a simple word to heal. And on top of that, when the risen Christ returns, a new heaven and a new earth Would you trust that God? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your creation in so many ways. It's breathtakingly beautiful and exquisite. In other ways, we've made it so ugly and hurtful and inscrutable. But in the middle of all of it, we can thank you for the daytime, for the light of heaven, for strawberries, for summer nights, for homes and family and relatives and friends. But more than that, we thank you that you gave us in the commandments the way to excellent living. And we bless you for justice and for righteousness and for generosity and compassion that pour out from people whenever another tragedy takes place. Thank you that you fulfilled your promises in Jesus Christ, that this anointed one made himself a sacrifice for us. He finished the work you gave him to do on the cross and when you raised him with power from the grave. Father, thank you for your new agreement to write your law on our hearts. We ask you today to fill us with your Holy Spirit so that by that Holy Spirit we can cry out to you, Dear Father, you are our God. We are your people. Thank you. In the name of our dear Lord Jesus, amen.